Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A lot of people are watching how the business of cannabis evolves in our state. That's because recreational or adult use cannabis sales in Connecticut are expected to start by the end of this year. Meanwhile, there have been efforts to mobilize local cannabis workers to join unions. Today, where we live, we explore how the cannabis industry is evolving. And later, we learn about the ways cannabis entrepreneurs can take classes and learn about the industry from seed to sale. Now, what questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Skylar Frazier, staff writer at the Hartford Business Journal, joins us first. Skylar, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the business of cannabis. Uh, We know this is a serious industry. We're talking a multi-billion dollar industry now since uh, the first, I think, legal market began back in 2014. And so from your perspective, what are you watching here in our state? Um, So right now we're really monitoring the process that's going through the Social Equity Council. Um, Social equity candidates really have the first crack at going through this lottery process that began in the state in February of this year. So every two weeks or so, the Social Equity Council has been hosting their own meetings to approve or deny social equity status of such cannabis companies, you know, whether that's transporters or hybrid retail locations or um, retail ventures, product manufacturers. Um, Social Equity Council is kind of deeming whether or not they are, they qualify for the status that they applied for. And after that process goes through, then they'll open up the general lottery um, to some non-social equity candidates. Um, So that's really where we're at right now, is just monitoring that process at the Social Equity Council on a kind of biweekly or monthly basis as those applications continue to um, get selected. I'm glad you walked us through some of those licenses that uh, need uh, to be given out uh, through uh, the State Department of Consumer Protection. A lot of people's hands will be touching this industry, uh, Skylar. It's complicated. Yeah, no, it definitely is. There's um, more than eight different license types if you really break it down between equity joint ventures and other sort of partnerships that can come through it. So yeah, the state really did a um, pursued the method of, hey, let's have a whole license type for really every specific business that will handle this product, whether it's delivery companies or whether it's actual cultivators that are growing the cannabis. Mm. Uh, Meanwhile, New York State is rolling out uh, their adult use program. And so when we look at this entrepreneurial space, uh, you know, how difficult is it to, to start a business here beyond just even getting the license, Skylar? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think when I've been interviewing people and talking to, you know, state officials and even just attorneys and accountants, the two big challenges right now for companies are access to capital. You know, it's not cheap at all to start a cannabis business. 
um, and finding a good location that makes sense. Um, for some of those cultivators, that's a, that's a huge step in the process because you're looking at pretty big facilities um, to be able to harvest and grow cannabis. Um, so yeah, between the access to capital and finding the space to actually locate your business, I think those are some of the, some of the big challenges Connecticut's entrepreneurs are facing right now. And when we think about, one, access to capital, uh, because cannabis uh, is still seen as an illegal substance federally, uh, a traditional way that people get capital is they go to a bank. So walk us through the challenges there, Skyler. Yeah, no. Um, and the Harvard Business Journal, we hosted in uh, Business and Cannabis Expo last week, and one of the panels directly focused on access to capital. And I thought it was really um interesting hearing some of entrepreneurs and venture capital groups chat about their involvement in the industry because as you mentioned it's federally illegal these big banks just aren't going to do loans for it they're not giving out these business loans to cannabis businesses because it's just such a high risk until it's um legal federally so right now um honestly a lot of options that i've been hearing are just uh private equity it's some entrepreneurs start with that friends and family round of saying, hey, I want to start up this cannabis business and raise some initial seed money that way. And then when they still have some more they might need to get, that's when they go the venture capital route or the private equity route. Um, through the state's program, you know, you can make these partnerships, even if you are a social equity candidate, but you need to make sure that ownership and control is still um, above the 65% thresholds. So there's a little bit of a, I don't know, give and take with that as entrepreneurs try to raise capital while also, you know, they're required to maintain control of their business as well. So um, there's definitely, yeah, a little bit of a give and take when it comes to raising money. Credit unions are another option as well. I've heard um, companies, you know, try to get involvement with, with some of the credit unions. So there are alternates, but um, without federal legality, there is that hiccup at the bank level. If you have questions about how the adult use cannabis market rolls out in our state, you can join us 888-720-9677. My guest, Skylar Frazier, who's a staff writer with the Hartford Business Journal. Uh, and, and my understanding, uh, Skylar, for those who've received, uh, I guess, the provisional license through the Social Equity uh, Council uh, in the state for even the cultivator license. We're talking uh, $3 million a fee that they and their partners uh, have to pony up? Yeah, yep. And that was definitely the fee that got a lot of attention at the start of this was um, a lot of the other fees are in the thousands range and, and a lot less than that. But the DIA cultivator license, three million fee was definitely something that stuck out to some people. And um, as some panelists that I talked to last week indicated, you know, it's, it's hard to argue that you wouldn't have to go with some company as a private equity backer with that $3 million fee, you know, social equity candidates need to meet very specific guidelines of income, um, and residency requirements and, you know, those income requirements don't really allow, <laughs> you probably don't have $3 million in the bank is what I'm saying. So, uh, a lot of those cultivators are, I imagine, going to end up striking partnerships with other firms or maybe established cannabis players in other states that are trying to make, um, trying to make a footprint in Connecticut as well. 
The other challenge that you mentioned uh, besides access to capital was finding locations. So let's drill down there and we think about how not all uh, parts of our state are going to be welcoming these businesses, even if uh, Connecticut has legalized adult use, Skylar. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely been a few schools of thought when it comes to uh, zoning so far. Um, A lot of cities and some towns have gone ahead of it and been planning on zoning drafting zoning guidelines for several months, kind of leading up to expected businesses opening. I know Manchester really got ahead of it. Um, Hartford has tried to get ahead of it as well at the planning and zoning level of just establishing pretty cut and dry criteria of where businesses can go and where they can't go and also what businesses can go where. Um, I think Hartford has allowed cannabis retailers to be, you know, right up along Main Street. Um, Other municipalities have kind of try to push them towards the outskirts of their towns or cities. Um, and then other other municipalities have just completely either put up a moratorium or are, tried to outright prohibit it through some of uh, the zoning ordinances. Um, so we are really seeing that. Um, a lot of places are welcome to it, but I think a lot of people are kind of waiting to see where some of these first businesses start up and the impacts of that in other communities before they allow it in their own towns. But with doing that, you're kind of risking missing that first wave. I think a lot of these first businesses, you know, being the first to market is is huge in a, in a brand new industry. So um, I'm interested to see how that plays out over the next few years of the towns that maybe had a moratorium on cannabis businesses and then are willing to have some later on, but maybe there's just not the not the need for it in a few years after mm-hmm. other players are already involved. So we've talked about some of the challenges on, on the money side and, of course, uh, policy and how uh, local residents and leaders, uh, whether they decide to embrace uh, this industry. Uh, but when we look at just the numbers of this multi-billion dollar cannabis industry in the United States alone here, we're talking, I think, last year, $25 billion of cannabis products sold in the U.S., both adult use and medical marijuana uh, that information from the Leafly Jobs Report. And so I'm thinking about all of the jobs that are attached uh, to this industry. And now there are efforts in our state uh, to unionize uh, these workers. Can you tell us about that, Skylar? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think it was back in back in March where there, there started to really begin some unionization efforts. And um, I'm not sure how many members are already involved or how many people have gone through. But um, yeah, there's there's definitely going to be that push. I, it's it's already started. I know. Um, I'm, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about memberships as businesses start to actually come online. But we've already, you know, I've talked to uh, people that are hoping to start these businesses, and they seem very willing and um, hopeful about the union's role in all of this. Um, I know. Luis Vega, who has a hemp farm and he's pursuing a few licenses in the state. He's our, he was one of the guys that was right at the first press conference saying, yep, my employees will be part of this union. I'm, you know, a union guy, my whole family is. So I think that's going to be a, a, an, an important step for the industry as well as we, you know, see so many jobs start up. 
Yes, and I believe Louis Vega is now suing the, the State Social Equity uh, Council yes. over the license process. Hey, Lou, call me. <laughs> We're trying to reach you. Uh, right now with us on uh, Where We Live is Skylar Frazier, again, who's a staff writer with the Hartford Business Journal as we talk about the cannabis industry rolling out in our state. Uh, joining us now on the phone is Emily Sabo, who's organizing director for the UFCW Local 919. Emily, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, in an op-ed for CT News Junkie, UFCW Local 919 President Mark Espinoza wrote that the Connecticut AFL-CIO has endorsed the UFCW as the Connecticut Cannabis Union, which essentially gives it a stamp of approval as a credible union to join. So tell us about uh, the process, because again, the adult use is still uh, rolling out here, uh, (laughs) and sales are not expected until at least the end of the year. You know, how are you working to mobilize? Uh, people either in the industry now or expecting uh, to to join the industry? Sure. So the UFCW has actually been um, organizing cannabis workers for over a decade now. We kind of started in California when they had a legal market and and moved across the country as more states became legal. So most recently um, in Connecticut, when the adult use bill had passed, it was passed with labor peace legislation, meaning that um, any operator, it's a a condition of their licensure to have a labor peace agreement with a bona fide labor union. Um, That's us. We are um, the cannabis union. And so what a labor peace agreement does is it gives the worker, it empowers the worker to make a choice free from interference from their employer um, if they want to join a union or not. So this was, this was groundbreaking legislation for workers to be empowered to make a decision um, and, and give themselves, create this industry um, and really uh, get in and, and have, have the opportunity to have a union while the industry is still forming. So when we talk about the workers, who are we talking about exactly? Uh, you know, what, would, what are their positions? And, you know, when you think about what you're advocating for, Emily? Sure. So um, we represent workers from seed to sale, everything that has to do with the flower from the point it's grown all the way up to um, to the retail end of, of it being sold, the dispensary text, things like that. Uh, when we think about tending the flower, so they're called bud tenders. Can you give us some more ideas of the, the frontline workers here? Yeah. So something interesting that's in the Connecticut legislation is that um, a lot Cannabis workers are not considered cultivators, so they do have the opportunity to form a union. Um, here in Connecticut, farm workers don't have those protections to form a union, but um, anyone who's you know processing the flower, trimmers, um, the cultivators, uh, processing, manufacturing, um, dispensary techs, all of those, all of those different positions will be able to form a union if they want to. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking with Skylar, so there's retail licenses, grow licenses, delivery licenses. So these are all potential uh, union uh, workers in the future, Emily? Yes. So we currently don't represent any cannabis workers yet right. in Connecticut. Um, as the adult use market um, continues to get off the grounds and get running. Um, we are excited to um, have most of the current operators um, have signed labor peace agreements with the UFCW, and that'll give us the opportunity to continue conversations with the workers, um, allow them to to make the choice to join our union, um, and and go from there to grow the industry. Now I'm curious. We know that Connecticut's medical marijuana program has been up and running for several years. So what about those workers? Yeah, those um, those workers, obviously, of course, now we have gotten, um, as, as this legislation passes for the adult use um, licenses or, or the adult use facilities, but a lot of these medical operators have, who have been 
um, working in the industry for, for some time now, have had interest in forming a union and having access to better wages, affordable health care, job security, and all the things that come with a union job. Yeah. Joining us now also on the phone is Nicole Barton, who's an organizer for the UFCW and a former cannabis industry worker. She lives in Massachusetts. Nicole, welcome to the show. Hello, good morning. Thank you for having me. So we've been looking to Massachusetts, right, to see how adult use uh, has uh, been going there. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, how you got involved in the union and what, uh, you know, you've been able to see with uh, cannabis workers there. Uh, Absolutely. Um, Prior to entering the cannabis industry, I used to be an administrative clerk for the state. So I definitely made a huge career move. Um, I wanted to be part of history, and I figured there was no better way to do it. I entered as a cultivator, and I remained one for about three years. Um, In that time period, I realized how important it was to be able to unionize these employees where, you know, we're being treated horribly. Um, Managers are, you know, there's a huge turnover rate. You're being disciplined for absolutely bogus reasons, in my opinion. Um, The safety issues are insurmountable. A lot of the places that they're buying up to actually house um, the cannabis is mostly old warehouses, and they're not really built for that type of, you know, work situation. So I started off on the um, committee, the negotiations committee. I helped negotiate the contract for uh, my department. I then became the shop steward. And from there, um, you know, just the, the more I saw, the more I believed in the union. And luckily, I was able to get hired on. And now I just further pursue being able to help other industries the way I was able to help my previous employer. Mm. Tell us more about what you're hearing from workers in Massachusetts so with, uh, you know, high turnover and, you know, the, the type of complaints. Absolutely. Um, so the high turnover rate is absolutely unfortunate. It's an easy way for a lot of um, companies to keep you at a certain wage. And I had a tier system where I was. And, I mean, there was tier one, two, and three, obviously three being, you know, paid the highest. And you barely saw any Tier 3s. It was very hard for um, a woman to become a Tier 3. That was almost never heard of. It was hard for, you know, most people just in general to move up because they would get fired for, you know, like I said before, very ridiculous reasons. And ever since we were able to finally get a contract in place, the turnover has decreased. Um, It gives the workers a voice. They have a voice to be able to have a grievance procedure now. Where we were able to reinstate people who were terminated previously from the company. It's, I mean, it, it couldn't be better. I can't be more happier, honestly. Mm-hmm. So what lessons uh, do you see for, for Connecticut, again, as this adult use market is still uh, starting uh, um, at the ground level? Well, I mean, I, the best advice I could give, which is what I did when I was a cultivator, you know, please do your due diligence and ask as many questions as possible. Go on to the USCW website. Um, just, you know, read, uh, look up a number, give us a call. Like, we're, we're here to answer any questions you have, and we will extensively do so. I recommend you guys definitely in Connecticut, you know, give it a chance. Uh, definitely allow someone to come in and organize you and then unionize you and allow yourself a voice because if you don't do it now and lay down the foundation for this upcoming generation, it's not going to happen. And then you're going to be treated horribly down the line. Mm -hmm. You want to stop this now while the industry is still so new and young.
Skylar Frazier is still with us, who's a staff writer with the Hartford Business Journal. Uh, Skylar, I'm curious what you're hearing from you know the current cannabis companies here in our state. What is their response uh, to unionizing? You know, some of them are from out of state, so they have already uh, you know dealt with this with uh, workers in those states. Yeah, honestly, I haven't heard too much about the unionization efforts so far. Um, as they said, we don't have any yet mm-hmm. until these companies come online. So I haven't heard too much other than social equity candidates definitely being favorable about unionization efforts almost in general from who I talked about. Um, I haven't really gotten that indication from out-of-state operators that are you know trying to pursue licenses on whether or not you know they imagine that being a challenge down the road. Um, I, I definitely that's something worth looking into, but I haven't heard anything either way from some of those big out-of-state companies. So something to watch. Again, that's Skylar Frazier, staff writer at Hartford Business Journal. I want to thank Emily Sabo for calling in, organizing director for the UFCW Local 919, the Connecticut Cannabis Union, also Nicole Barton, organizer for the UFCW and a former cannabis industry worker uh, who now is involved with the union in Massachusetts. Thank you both uh, for calling in today. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, Connecticut joins several states with plans to open their first adult-use cannabis stores. Their entry continues to fuel job creation in the cannabis industry. With those opportunities ahead, more cannabis education programs have become available. We learn more after the break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As more states legalize cannabis and begin adult use sales, cannabis has become the most powerful job creator in America. That's according to the Leafly Jobs Report released earlier this year. It found 2021 was the fifth year in a row. The cannabis industry saw an annual job growth rate higher than 27%, with a 33% increase in cannabis jobs in just a single year. And Leafly says with Connecticut joining other states opening their first adult-use cannabis stores in the next 18 months, the cannabis job creation boom 
is expected to continue. With those opportunities ahead, more cannabis education programs are available. Joining us now on Zoom is Daniel Califf, Senior Vice President of Higher Education at Greenflower. It's a cannabis education company that has partnered with University of New Haven to create curricula around cannabis education. Daniel, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you very much. And if you're looking to work in the adult use market, you can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So again, Greenflower is a cannabis education company. So I imagine you started in California. And tell us, uh, you know, what have you been involved in since? Sure. Well, you imagined correctly. <laughs> uh, we, we were founded uh, eight years ago in California when California went uh, legal. Uh, there was so much misinformation. And in California, as you can imagine, you know, what they call it in this industry is the legacy uh, industry. So people who were, you know, um, part of the industry before it was legal, I guess would be a great way to say it. And so that when when it becomes legal in a state like California, there's a lot of misinformation and myth. And uh, so our company was founded uh, by two folks who wanted to solve for that and to make sure that the information out there was credible and that people understood that it was a legitimate industry, et cetera, and kind of grew from there. And um, in the last couple of years, we, uh, you know, we had created uh, some curriculum we had, we had identified with through partnerships with many, many, many leaders in the industry, um, some of the holes in, in people's understanding of the industry as they started businesses, as they wanted to get jobs, as they, as they be, you know, as they were lawyers and doctors and nurses who are now faced with clients and patients who, who were, uh, had access, you know, before they did, before, you know, without anybody's, uh, you know, telling them yes or no. And so, um, we've created a, a, a lot of curriculum to help folks really understand the industry and how to work in it and, and work with it. Uh, and, by, and we did so in, in, by partnering with universities across the country uh, in, in states, mostly in states where they're illegal, um, but helping universities reach their, you know, their regional and local communities and, and help them really uh, get geared up for the industry as it comes to their state. Uh, before we hear more about the the curricula that you helped develop for University of New Haven, I wonder if we can go back to the, the legacy part of the conversation. Sure. When we think about, again, uh, how this industry has evolved and the stigma attached to, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering if you can talk more mm -hmm. about, you know, how you've been able to work through that, because this is a legitimate business now in many states. Well, very legitimate. It's it's uh, obviously the, it's the fastest growing job market in the country, as you as you re, you know recalled the Leafly report. There's over four hundred now. There's over four hundred and fifty thousand people working in the country. So, um, but stigma is still an issue. And one of the reasons that we thought about this three years ago is when we you know when we thought about should how should we get more education out into the public. The idea of partnering with accredited U.S. universities. Um, made sense, obviously, in the first point that I made, like, in, you know, partnering with the University of New Haven means that we've got a partner in Connecticut for Connecticut uh, residents and beyond. But, you know, people that really, you know, regionally, you know, know the name of the University of New Haven and respect it, et cetera. Um, but the more that we could do that with schools, we also thought that that would help with the legitimacy issue and the stigma. You know, when 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 the University of New Haven or Syracuse University or the University of Arizona, et cetera, are all are offering programs in cannabis, I think that goes a long way towards helping with the with the stigma. And I and I believe it has. Um, the more there's been a lot of reports recently about universities, not just those with whom we work, but all over the country that are offering more and more curriculum and coursework and degree programs. I think it's it, it continues to help with that that stigma issue. 
So 18 accredited universities are, are offering cannabis education programs. Again, uh, you're working with University of New Haven with their curricula. So tell us about uh, the program and you know what people are learning. Is it a certificate program? Just wondering if you could t- give us more detail there. Absolutely. So, so there's four programs actually, um, and they and they come out of University of New Haven's, um, you know, it's it's continuing and professional education uh, department, if you will. So, um, non-credit certificate programs to help people that, you know, when we did our market research, we found that most people that wanted to get into the industry either had a undergraduate or graduate degree or or some college education, and so going back for a degree wasn't necessarily important, but getting the education was. So, by able being able to offer a non-credit program uh, it's more accessible to to lots of people you know both in time commitment and in price compared to getting a degree and so um, the four programs are the business of cannabis uh, cannabis compliance and risk management cannabis healthcare and medicine and cannabis agriculture and horticulture so um, and each one of them touches a, a, a very different part of the industry if you will uh, we always call that that cannabis uh, the business of cannabis program kind of a a mini NBA in business, uh, you know, what most people don't understand, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, like banking laws, for instance, you know, if you're making money in a cannabis industry, you cannot put your money in a federally insured bank. So how do you deal with accounting and banking and finance, et cetera, or, or marketing is a great point too. You know, you cannot buy a Google AdWord with the word cannabis in it still, because Google is not interested in going up against the federal government. So how do you market your, your dispensary or your product, et cetera, you know, we, we cover that in addition to what you would expect, manufacturing and distribution and retail operations and, you know, you know, all kind of the things that everybody thinks about when they think of the business of cannabis. You can't forget the stuff that's that's important to every business like HR and banking and, you know, and, and marketing, et cetera. So all of those things are kind of covered in the in that business of cannabis certificate. Uh, and so that's the type of thing that most people are looking for when they're thinking about starting a business. Um, but then, you know, we have the, our agriculture and horticulture program is our most popular program. Uh, and I, and it's also for people who, you know, are looking to work in or, or build out a, a, you know, a grow operation. It's an incredible program really from, from understanding the, the seed to the, to the, to the processing afterwards and everything in between. It's, it's great. And then one thing people also don't think about is, because it's so heavily regulated, a lot of people think, well, it's not federally legal, so there's probably not all that federal, you know, regulation. There's a ton when it comes to each state, and Connecticut is no different, and continuing to evolve. And uh, and so uh, a compliance and risk management program really helps people who want to work in that part of the industry and help companies with their compliance, et cetera. Um, and then the healthcare medicine program really was created originally for people working in healthcare, doctors and nurses and therapists. Um, who didn't get much education on the endocannabinoid system in the human body in in med school or nursing school. And this really helps them better understand what their patients are now seeing when they if they walk into a dispensary, you know, and, and how it interacts with other drugs and other treatments. And it's really great. But a lot of people we find are taking this program who want to work on the retail side and be and be much more 
helpful to their to their to customers who are walking in. You know, I you you talked about bud tender, uh, you know, the bud tender role earlier, and I we personally we we call that a, a dispensary associate because you know half the people that are walking into a dispensary are over the age of fifty and looking to solve for a problem and not just get high. And so having someone who, whose name is whose title is similar to a bartender who's helping you trigger figure out inflammation or or pain or you know things like that uh we we like to think of it as a much more professional area and people who take that healthcare medicine certificate program oftentimes go into into the retail side as well that's an important point also helping to combat uh, that stigma that we just discussed uh, daniel caliph is my guest senior vice president of higher education at greenflower a cannabis education company that has partnered with the University of New Haven to create a curricula around uh, the, the many facets of the cannabis industry. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. So what has been the response at University of New Haven in terms of the number of people that are seeking out these cannabis education programs, Daniel? Yeah, it's it's been tremendous. So we we just had the first cohort start two weeks ago. Um, we had just over fifty students in our first cohort, which is I can tell you from first cohorts from other schools is a really great number. Um, but the more important than that is, um, or equally as important, I should say, is the the you know we do a lot of marketing. Part of our responsibility to the university is to help them market and advertise for the programs and. And because we know how to do it a little bit better, you know, that it's probably beneficial for us to be helping. Um, and uh, and the leads, if you will, the number of people who have come to the program website uh, and and um, and looked at it and checked out the programs has been, you know, just tremendous. You know, thousands of people have checked it out already. Uh, and so we're excited about, you know, what we assume every, but pretty much the programs are six months long, but they're made up of three, eight week courses and they're fully online, which is great. So they're very flexible. Um, so about every eight weeks, we have a new cohort start. And so we're already seeing people register for the next one in November. Um, so it's really, it's, it's, it's just been tremendous and not a surprise, honestly. And do you follow people as they get their certificates to make sure that they are, you know, uh, finding jobs in the industry? We do. Well, we make we certainly make an attempt. It's 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 mm-hmm. voluntary. You know, we we send a, a survey when they complete the, their certificate program to see how they felt about the program, et cetera. Uh, and then a couple months later, we send another survey about you know where they are and what they've done with it, et cetera. And so, of course, it's they don't have to respond, um, but all of the responses that we do receive have been just tremendous, and they've not only thoroughly enjoyed the program and got a lot out of it, but um, have gotten jobs, have moved. We get a lot of people who are already in the industry to take these programs because they never had any formal training, uh, even working in the company. It's kind of, you know, on the job training and this really gives them better perspective. And we hear a lot of students talk about that and how it's helped them in their current job and help them move up. Um, you know, one of the things that we've noticed is that the you know upward mobility in this industry is tremendous. People who are starting even at the front line, you know, entry level are getting into management if they know what they're doing and do it well very quickly within less than a year in a lot of cases. And so we get a lot of students who are talking about how they're able to move up in their company as well. And these programs are affordable, Daniel? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, certainly compared to a degree they are. So they um, they are... 
just under three thousand dollars for a six month program, um, and um, you, there's there's ways to spread those payments out too. We understand that that even three thousand dollars is is still a lot for people, but certainly compared to getting any other you know degree or, or associate's degree or things like that, it's um, we, we think it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Skylar Fraser is so with us, staff writer at the Hartford Business Journal. Uh, Skylar, what is the the education uh, looking like in our state? We're just hearing specifically about the the U. NH programs around uh, cannabis. I'm wondering if you can tell us more. Yeah, I I think what Daniel mentioned about kind of changing the stigma is really important. And I think that's where some of the universities can come into play. I I wrote about University of New Haven's um, adoption of this program um, back when it was announced uh, several months ago. And I know UConn has also, the University of Connecticut has had a huge role um, as well of just I know they have a hemp program. They also have a horticulture and agriculture program that has studied cannabis, um, really all parts of the plant. So uh, University of Connecticut has been really involved as well. I know there have been members of uh, Trinity and some colleges right here in Hartford getting involved. Um, I think everyone's trying to figure out their role in the industry. And um, no one wants to leave their students behind because this is a really interesting market that a lot of new people are are going to be entering. Um, so I think a lot of universities are going to continue exploring programs like this and certification classes because just being able to go to a startup company and say, "Hey, I got the startup, I got the certification from a well-known, established company already. I, I know how to do some of the things that." you're going to want me to do as an employer. I think that's huge. It gives you kind of an edge that you already know some of the background about the plant. You already know some of the details about um, what you're going to want to tell customers. And even you might know how to grow it after some of these certification uh, classes. So I do think, um, yeah, it's a benefit for both changing the stigma and really giving potential employees an edge up on maybe their competition because they have a they have a natural certification and a mm-hmm. training program that they can refer to in the future. But Skylar, is there also attention there uh, from uh, people in, in the legacy market? Uh, you know, again, people have been uh, growing uh, cannabis for for many many years. This idea that you need a certificate to get a job or uh, to be able to make money in this industry, and is there even intention with universities offering this type of program? Yeah, no. So I, absolutely, I uh, again. Talking about the the expo that we at the APJ had last last week, there there were several people that brought up, hey, you know, universities can't have a role in this, but they don't necessarily need to. There are people that have been growing cannabis illegally for many years, you know, whether it's in their their green rooms or out just outdoors or in their apartments. Um, so there definitely is that line of thought of say of maybe trying to find a, a middle ground of having that expertise that you can get from a certification program, but also it's not so bad if you just know how to do it because you've been doing it as part of the legacy market, as, as people say for decades, this is, you know, this isn't growing cannabis is not a new thing just because it's now legal in a lot of places. And I think that's an important thing to remember. Um, And I think that is what a lot of social equity candidates are, are hoping people recognize that, you know, hey, just because this is my first business or first official cannabis business doesn't mean I'm a necessarily a novice when it comes to understanding the flower and understanding, you know, some of the benefits and risks associated with it. 
Again, that's Skylar Frazier, staff writer at Harvard Business Journal. We heard from Brian on Facebook who writes that uh, he's a professor at Eastern Connecticut State University, and they are um, they have a cannabis minor and also a conference coming up uh, mid-October. We'll be sure to, to learn more there. I also want to thank uh, Daniel Califf for joining us, Senior Vice President of Higher Education at Greenflowers, a cannabis education company. Daniel, thank you for your perspective today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Coming up after the break, we're pivoting to another story. Locally, visitors to the former Children's Museum in West Hartford. You remember Connie the Whale? Well, the museum is moving, and we find out more about efforts to preserve this giant replica of Connecticut's state animal, too. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, visitors to the former Children's Museum in West Hartford remember Connie the Whale. It's this giant replica of a sperm whale that was outside the museum. The museum is moving its location, and now there are efforts to move Connie the Whale, too. Joining us now with more is David Kaplan, who's an attorney and also with the Cetacean Society International. David, welcome to the show. Oh. Good morning to you. Glad to be here. <laughs> so for listeners who don't know Connie, tell us about him. Very briefly, it's a tale of extinction and trying to avoid that. And in the 70s, with activism all around, one of the points of activism, conservation, and environmentalism was Save the Whale, the really uh, the explosion of the Save the Whale movement. And activists here in Connecticut, a group of all volunteers, a very large group of all volunteers took steps towards the movement to save the whale, creating the Connecticut Cetacean Society, which has now become Cetacean Society International. First was petitioning the legislature, making the sperm whale a state animal. Why? Because Connecticut had a history of the commercial hunting of whales. It was, I think, the second leading state in commercial hunting of whales. And in the 70s, whales were still being hunted. Following the state animal becoming the sperm whale, and the sperm whale becoming the state animal, the group built a whale, a life-size model of a sperm whale made out of concrete. And my understanding to, to this day, it's the largest statue, cement statue, of a sperm whale in the world. Mm. And it's at the Children's Museum, because at the time it was called the Connecticut Science Museum. At the time, members of that museum were part of the group to save whales. Sperm whale was on, on the road to extinction, and that became not only because of the Connecticut role, the role Connecticut played in hunting the whale, but the fact that that whale was then on the brink of extinction, and it became a state animal, and it became Connie, mm. Connie standing for Connecticut. And now there's a GoFundMe to save Connie, because again, as I mentioned, the current location at the former Children's Museum property, um, which is at Trout Brook, and they're going to possibly move it across the street to the Trout Brook Greenway, but that's going to cost a lot of money. So tell us, David, how, how, are, we, how are you doing with this fundraising effort? And, you know, why should people care about moving this statue? Because I, I understand the cost is enormous. The cost could well be a very large number. And of the entities that have a role in moving the whale, unfortunately, there are many folks, and I don't know anybody that's 
not in favor of saving Connie and moving the whale. But our group is maybe the, the smallest group with the biggest interest in saving Connie. So I, I bring up the word extinction in the fact that the reason why Connie was built and the reason why it has uh, so many volunteers involved 45 years ago, it, the reason it stands today, the whales are still facing extinction. The whales are still being hunted. And so the role of Connie is the same today as it was years ago. To move across the street would be ideal because the cost to move the whale is going to be prohibitive. Again, I found nobody against the idea of the move. But where to move the whale became an issue. The museum has a place to move, and the land where Connie is will be developed into something quite else. But there just happens to be a park across the street, the Greenway. And that, I think, is the ideal place for Connie to go. Again, nobody, nobody seems to be against that, but we still have to wait for the positive sign that, yes, we can go across the street to the Greenway. Uh, the reason why I think Connie has to be saved is, again, the reason why Connie was built. It's a symbol of preserving and saving a huge part of the environment, mm -hmm. of, our envi uh, of our the animal world, and the fact that whales then and now face extinction. So the cost the of... of Connie remains, I'm saying the role of Connie remains the same, and the support seems to be there mm -hmm. more than ever. But how to rally folks in the modern age is not as easy as it was maybe... Right. 45 years ago. So the cost of what, that you're trying to raise is $250,000. And, you know, if you're able to raise that amount, you know, how difficult would it be to move Connie? Well, there's two parts to that. I don't think it, nothing today seems impossible. And when you want to get it done, it won't be impossible. The alternative, if we don't move Connie, is we lose Connie. Again, I bring back and I stress that word extinction. Connie represents preventing the extinction of animals such as Connie, sperm whale, if we lose Connie, it's gone forever. That's extinction. So there is no plan B in that sense. Connie either is moved or lost. The cost is one where there are definitely players, entities that could help make this happen. The museum seems quite interested. The state, I know, is quite interested. Folks of the legislature are very supportive and money even set aside to the museum to include Connie. But all these different pieces are not necessarily in concrete, maybe the wrong term to use. <laughs> we are going to insist and see that the whale is moved. We are going to save Connie. What is the best way to do so? Just as it was 45 years ago. We got volunteers. We went out and we did it. Now we're going to do a fundraiser. $250,000, I hope, is more than enough. Two reasons. One, I hope it doesn't cost that much to move across the street but I've been given thoughts from others that it could be. The other is the whale just doesn't have to be lifted and plopped. It's got to become part of a park. It needs a pedestal to stand on. It needs the educational aspects around it to make it as meaningful to the public as it should be. It needs that upkeep. It needs care into the future. So every dollar that we are raising is for Connie. How much will be exactly for the actual move? It's going to be a lot. Hopefully, again, not the full two hundred fifty thousand. Mm. And what's the, the, the yeah, David, and, and the way to I could say the way to move a whale is it could be anything from being lifted by a helicopter to be to be being put on a truck. Chances are it'll be the truck. Right. And what what's the deadline here? Yeah, again, these are things are so wide open. We've set our own deadline. We would like to have Connie moved before winter. The museums had different deadlines for themselves, but they've moved. 
we were able and fortunate enough to find another temporary location. The museum has moved. Uh, the developer would like to develop. I hear they start hearings in October. Again, how fast that takes place could determine how fast Connie must move. We can't wait for that. This is a project that we have to take our own initiative and our own role in saying, yes, Connie has to be moved. An ideal place is across the street in the Greenway, and we want to make it happen before winter. Right. You mentioned there's a lot of support to move Connie. Have you heard from many you know, local officials who are, are helping uh, to, to raise awareness about this, David? Well, it's interesting. I've been in touch. You know, we've been working on this now for well over a year, and it's been on our radar for way longer than that. And I've been in touch with the local leaders, and everyone seems to be in favor of saving Connie, and then and even the move to keep Connie in West Hartford. The mayor of West Hartford, the representatives of West Hartford, the Speaker of the House at the legislature, everybody is understanding of Connie, in favor of Connie, and very much have a positive influence towards helping this project. But when it actually comes, the push comes to shove, we're the ones that are saying, yes, we're going to do it, and we welcome every bit of help that we can get. As soon as the green light is there, that we can go to the park. Uh, that's where we, we, we feel Connie should be moved. Um, but we're only a small player in this, and the others have got to step up as much as we have. A simple example, the, the bids being put in to move the whale are all being uh, organized through the museum. And the sooner that process is finalized, I think the sooner that we can understand exactly what the cost will be and exactly what the timing will be. But we're not in control of that piece of the project. Right. And we're waiting and hoping and encouraging that it happens sooner and certainly not any later than now. There's a link uh, with more about the campaign to save Connie at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. I want to thank David Kaplan for joining us, an attorney and president of the Cetacean Society International. David, thank you for talking about Connie, and we'll, we'll check in in a few months to see how it's going. Yeah, please, if I could just make one more mention. Oh. It's a GoFundMe. GoFundMe, please yes. Go well, we have the link there. <laughs> thank you so much, David. A GoFundMe a link on our website. David Kaplan, thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Coming up tomorrow, what are you looking forward to watching, streaming, or even reading this fall? We'll hear from NPR TV critic Eric Deggins and also from RJ Booksellers. We hope you join us as well.